welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Philippians 1, starting in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I was just thinking as we were worshiping about the miracles your son Jesus did and how he healed people of all sorts of infirmities. And Lord, especially for that, that woman that was, she was not able to stand up straight for 18 years. And Lord, just thinking about the way that we may have come in here crippled, withered, bent. And Lord, we need you to straighten us up. Lord, maybe some have come in here and have, for like that woman for 18 years, have in some way dealt with brokenness. And Lord, we just pray for your healing. We pray, Lord, that you'd make us whole. We pray that you'd straighten us out, straighten our, our view of you and straighten out our view of, of ourselves and straighten out our view of each other, and Lord, especially we pray that you would straighten out our loves, Lord, the things that we love, the things that we want, the things that we desire, Lord, we pray that you'd make us whole, that you would help us to love the things you love and desire the things you, you promise, and Lord, we pray, even as you healed through your son, that woman, that day, we just pray that people would walk out of here whole, they would walk out of here healed, they would walk out of here glorifying your name. And we pray that as we look at your word, as we study your word, as your spirit enlivens your word to our hearts, we pray that you would do this work that only you can do. And we pray that it would be for your glory and your praise and your honor and your worship and your allegiance alone. And we pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. If you guys are new to us, um, you've come in a good time. We're starting a new book. We're starting the book of Philippians. And uh, we're starting a deep dive series in it. Remember from last week that Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians in uh, 60 AD. So that was 11 years after he had planted the church there. We looked last week at Acts 16, which occurred 11 years before this book was written, and how Paul brought the gospel to that place. And remember, it started with just three people. It started with Lydia the merchant, a slave girl who was demon-possessed, and a Roman jailer. God saved them, God redeemed them, and then they and their families started this church in a very hostile background. 
It's, it's amazing, because here we are 11 years later when read this letter, and this church has all of the biblical leadership that's needed for it to be its own self-sustaining church. You can see in verse 1 that it has overseers and deacons. Those are the two offices of the church. You have overseers, which are the same thing as pastors or elders. That's all one office. You've got pastor, overseer, elder. That's one type of leader. And then the other type of leader are the deacons. In our church, the pastors and elders, would be Josh and I, and soon in a couple weeks, we'll add Gabriel to our team. Out of our deacons, we've got Dave in the back there. We've got Christina, who did the reading, Christina Nunez, and uh, Ish Nunez, who leads worship. We're hoping to add more. So as we think about those offices, you know, let us know if that's something you're interested in, and we definitely will be on the lookout for more and more leaders. But God's designed the church in a very simple way. I think as we look at the church in contemporary America, it looks very complicated. It looks like something that would be very hard to start, very hard to maintain, very hard to do. But God's actually designed the church very simply so that it can actually exist anywhere. It could be started anywhere and has been started everywhere. And then for those of you guys who aren't either an overseer or a deacon, do you see yourself in that greeting there in verse 1? To all the saints... That's actually the most exalted title in the whole group is the saints. The Greek is hagios. It's the the holy ones, the set-apart ones. You guys who are Christians are saints in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a great title? Saints in Christ Jesus. Do you guys think of yourself that way? Be like, hey, you know, you're a saint in Christ Jesus. Do you kind of recoil from that a little bit? Well, I don't know if I'm a saint. That's one of the common terms in Scripture for believers. They're the holy ones. They're set-apart And notice where you're set apart. You're set apart in Christ Jesus. You're holy because you're in the Holy One. Flip over to uh, Philippians 3.9. He says there that you are found in Christ, not having a righteousness of your own that comes from the law, but that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. If you're a Christian this morning, you're a saint, you're a set-apart one, you're a holy one, because you're in Jesus, the Holy One. It's because you're in Christ. It's not that you're holy in and of yourself, but you're holy in Him. And you know, Paul doesn't actually use the term Christian in any of his letters. He doesn't use the term Christian for you. What he uses most commonly for us is those who are in Christ. That's the most common thing you hear him saying over and over again. If you read Ephesians, it's dozens of times in Ephesians. Also here in Philippians, he talks about, you are those who are in Christ. And this is something truly unique about the gospel from any other religion. And that is, you get this salvation up front. Okay? No other religion, no other system, spiritual belief, do you get the salvation up front. You actually get it up front. You're made a saint immediately. I grew up in kind of a Catholic context, and the only way to become a saint is you have to die, you know, and then there's a whole process of, of figuring out if you did the right miracles, had the right life, and you even have to do a few miracles after you die, which is tricky. And um, so it's very difficult to get, right? That's my point. But in, in Christianity, in the gospel, you are a saint up front, biblically. You're a saint up front. And this changes everything. You have to learn to see yourself as a saint in Christ. It changes everything. It changes the way you relate to God. It changes the way you approach him when you're sinning. It changes the way you, you commune with them. It changes the way you think of the other people in this room. If you think of these people in this room as what they really are, saints in Christ. These are extremely rare and valuable people, saints in Christ. It's a meeting of the saints. And as Paul is thinking about these saints in Christ, he has a few thoughts for them. He, 
He's stirred up to thankfulness, and that's in verse 3. He has something he's thankful for. He has something he's sure of, that's in verse 6. And then he has something he's praying for. And as we think about each other, the believers right in this room, the saints in this room, we also will have something in this text to be thankful for, to uh, be sure of, and something to pray for. So first, let's look at thankful for. These regular Philippian Christians had a partnership relationship with Paul. This is totally foreign to the way that we think as 21st century Christians. We tend to think that we have a spectator performer relationship with the church or that we have a customer service provider relationship with the church. We're taught that, guys, in many, many subtle ways. It's the way that the church tends to be marketed. Come and see this. See this performance. Be a spectator or come be a customer of this spiritual service provider. But that's not the relationship these ordinary believers had with Paul. Take a look at verse 3. I am thankful. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy. And then listen to the reason. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That's kind of amazing. They were partners in the mission with Paul from the first day. Do you remember what they were like on the first day? They didn't know anything, right? It was a, a merchant. It was uh, a slave girl that just got her demon taken out, and she just got freed from slavery, and a jailer. They, they knew hardly anything, and yet Paul says they were partners with him from the first day. I think that this is something we need to hear because I think we think that we need some advanced training, or we need to read a whole bunch of books, or we need a whole bunch of experiences, or, you know, we need a lot of time before we could be really useful for the cause of the gospel, and they were partners with him from the beginning. How were they partners? Well, part of it was financial. Probably mostly Lydia was supporting him from the beginning. We see a little later in this book, there's this guy, Epaphroditus, that we're going to meet. And Epaphroditus, you know, Paul's in prison again in another place. And the church sends this guy, Epaphroditus, to go minister to Paul, take care of him. Because when you're in prison in those days, like they didn't provide you food and stuff like that. Somebody needed to come and provide for your needs. And so they send Epaphroditus. On the way he gets sick, but he keeps going, and Paul says he nearly died to help me out. And so that's the kind of all-in way that they were on mission from the very beginning. And this new church, guys, it grew. This is amazing. Just think about it. So remember Acts 16, Paul comes, he shares the gospel, he makes a big ruckus, he leaves, he leaves these three people and their families, and what happens? Eleven years later, even a few months later, there's a church there. There's believers there. Isn't that amazing? the tenacity of the gospel, the tenacity of, of these new believers. They were partners from the very beginning. And the reason for that, guys, is that the things that are needed to grow a church are actually quite simple. They're things like you make relationships with the people here. You make re relationships with the people out there in your community, in your neighborhood, and in your workplace. You practice hospitality. You bring those people from here and those people from there, and you bring them together. You invite people outside of the church into our gospel community. They hear the gospel. They get transformed. It's that simple. It's something anyone could do. Isn't that cool? Don't you love that you can, like, you can be a part of the mission from the very first day? You become a believer today, you're immediately a partner on mission. You know, it's not something for us to, to just watch or something for us to just support, but it's something for all of us to be a part of. I just love that. I've always loved that about the New Testament and the way it speaks of Christians. And I just say this morning, guys, aren't you thankful for the simplicity of the church? You know, the, the brothers and sisters that you have right here that you can pray with, that you can worship with, you can seek their counsel, 
we bear one another's burdens, we meet each other's needs, and then we can take people that we meet out in our neighborhoods or our families or whatever, and we can introduce them to these people, and then we can just watch God work. It's really that simple. It's amazing. And so when you pray for us, when you pray for the people in this room, it's so easy, isn't it, to have the heart that Paul has. Look at verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. These people, these people you fellowship with are miracles of God's grace. Something to be thankful for. Secondly, something to be certain of, sure of. Look at verse 6. Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers of me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul mentions in verse 6, you see where he mentions the day of Jesus Christ. And then a little bit later in verse 10, he says the day of Christ. The day of Christ is the most important day of your life. The day of Christ is the day when Jesus will return. He's going to rescue his people. He's going to judge the world, and he's going to make all things new. It is the most important day. Sometimes it's just called the day in the New Testament, you know, because it is the day. You know, Revelation 21 speaks of the day this way. He says, Then I saw the heavens open, and behold, a white horse, and the one seated on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he strikes down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh is his name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If there's a day coming, I don't know when, he will come suddenly and he'll appear. And it says the, the clouds will open and Christ will return, not on a donkey like he was when he came to, to die on the cross, but he'll come on a white horse and he will come to rescue his people and judge the world. Revelation 20 says this, And then I saw a great white throne in him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and there was no place found for them. This is an amazing thing when you think about it. So Christ returns, he sits on his throne to judge, and it says heaven and earth flee away from the throne. It's like everything we see here suddenly isn't here. It's just us and him. Isn't that amazing to think about? It's like, you know, when there's fog on the road and you drive by and the fog just disappears. It's like suddenly... There's nothing but us and Christ. There's nothing but us and God. And then he says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. And another book was opened, the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead that were in them, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, each one according to what they had done. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And then you have right after that, Revelation 21 and 22, where he makes the whole world new and his people inhabit that. 
And it's about that day, guys. It's about that day that Paul says this. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. How beautiful are those words? When you think about that day, and he says, I'm convinced. He says, I'm absolutely sure that these people I love will persevere in faith until the end and be received into Christ's kingdom. And you think like, okay, Paul, like, how do you know that? <laughs> you know, it's kind of a strong statement to make. You know, I don't know how many people you feel like you can go up to and you can say, I'm convinced of this. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. We'll see in a second who you could do that to. But you might wonder, like, how does Paul know this? And I don't think that Paul was able to, like, he had special access to the book of life. And he was like, let's see who's in there, you know. And he's making sure all the people that are in the church are in the book of life. And then he's like, hey, I'm, I'm convinced. I saw the book. You're good, right? No, that's not what he's doing. He's doing this based on their lives. Paul saw something in their lives that made him certain that they would be faithful to Christ until the end. What did he see? He actually tells us. He's seen that God began a good work in them. Look at verse 6. For I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Do you see why he's so certain? He's certain because he knows that God has started a work in them. You know, he, he knows that that desire they have for God, that persistence in following God, has to be the work of God. Because really, any desire that any person has for God is the work of God. It's a good work that God's begun. You guys remember Lydia from last week? It says in Acts 16, 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, right? He began a good work in her. And if you're in Christ, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, God has begun a good work in you. I mean, seriously, what explains you, you know? What explains those of you who have a persistent desire to follow Christ? What explains the fact that you find Jesus to be the most valuable person or thing in all of the universe? What explains that you will just persistently keep following him? That you'll, you'll fall into sin, but you'll always keep coming back to him. You just can't stop following him. You just can't let him go. You know, what explains that? God has begun a work in you, and he'll bring it faithfully until the end. Another thing that makes Paul so sure about their perseverance is, is how much they've already been through. Look at verse 7. They've been through a lot together. Verse 7, It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. He's talking about, like, the drama they've been through. They've been through a lot of difficulty. I mean, think about the planting of the church. Typical church plant in our area. You ran out of place like this. You make some nice signage. You buy some donuts. You invite people. They come. Their church plant, Paul gets stripped. He's beaten raw with rods. He's thrown in stocks. He's put in prison. He's later asked very politely to leave town, right? It was a crazy start. I mean, those first people had to be like, maybe this isn't the way to go, you know? This seems rough. I mean, this is our first day at church. It's kind of, is it going to be more of this? And it was more of this, right? It was just more and more of this. Paul and the Philippians continued to endure hardship. Paul's in prison again. They live in this incredibly hostile culture. And yet, they keep following Christ. You know, their faith is not fragile. A lot of times we think that faith is super fragile. You know, we think that way with our kids. And you know, if their faith is some sort of 
very delicate little glass item that we have to wrap up really carefully in bubble wrap because, you know, it could break at any moment. It's this fragile thing. Guys, their faith was not fragile. Your faith is not fragile. Your faith is what's called anti-fragile, okay? There are things that are just tough and you can't break them. There are things that are fragile and easy to break. And then there's anti-fragile. Anti-fragile are things that when you beat them up, they get stronger. Bones are like that. You know, the more you pound your bones on pavement, the thicker they get, the stronger they get. Certain things are anti-fragile. Guys, the faith that God gives to follow Christ is anti-fragile, right? Uh, Why? Because of the persevering grace of God. Look at verse 7. For you all are partakers with me of grace. When he speaks of that grace, and he speaks about it in context, it must be persevering grace. It's the grace that God gives to keep you believing. You ever wonder why you keep believing? You keep believing because of the persevering grace of God. You guys remember what Jesus said to Peter? He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demands to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. I don't know what that is, but it's not good. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. The reason you keep believing is because Jesus keeps praying for you. That's the persevering grace. And we've been through a lot together too. I wouldn't say Philippian level, you know, (laughs) pain, but some difficulty. And a lot of us have known each other a really long time. I mean, some of us have known each other 10 years, some 15, some 20 years. Some of you just joined us during the pandemic, which is like we've known each other 50 years. You know, it's like real tight now, you know, it didn't take long. We've been through a lot the last, you know, two and a half years, right? First, we suddenly lost our ability to meet altogether. Then when we did meet, we we met in masks, which was no fun. And then we lost our ability to meet in the morning. So then we're at like four o'clock in masks, which is extra not good. And then we had to meet outside in a parking lot at four o'clock for a really long time. And uh, no masks, so that was great. But it was cold. Do you remember being cold? Yeah, I would preach in this shirt and people were like, you're going to die, you know. I'm suffering for the Lord, you know. It was very heroic. But it was, it was cold. It was also hot, but on different nights. Four o'clock in our area of the world is the hottest part of the day. So sometimes it was really hot. Some days it was very windy. Do you remember the wind? And we had those pallets. So we set up, we were in a parking lot. It was real nice. And we had some planters and uh, making the best of it. The chairs were nice. And then we had these pallet things all around. And they were a windbreak, but they were also a sail. So one day we're like, do we keep them? Do we not keep them? Will they crush people or would they be better to keep the wind down? And so we just bungeed them all together. And then we were just like, you know what? If this blows out into the parking lot, you know, out of the street, we'll just light it on fire and get new stuff because it was like so crazy, right? We were outside next to a brewery. The brewery on Sunday nights liked to have live music. I don't know how many of you guys remember taking communion to Hotel California. For some of you, that was your dream, and we made it happen. But, you know, I'm like talking about the Lord's Supper. I'm leading the Lord's Supper, and then I'm like kind of like, stabbing with the stealing knives, but they just can't kill. And I'm like, you know, it's kind of a Christus Victor thing going on there maybe, trying to tie that in. And then, and then we had, so Sanctity of Life Sunday, preaching on abortion. They decided to have the lobster truck come. So like half of Menifee is out there while, you know, I'm preaching on abortion. Half the people are there for, for a lobster truck. We lost our our location, we lost our meeting time, we lost our children's ministry, we lost all of our deacons, we lost an elder, we lost our main worship leader. 
it was quite a year. It was like the knight in the search for the Holy Grail. You know, the black knight when he's getting like multiple limbs chopped off. And every time we were like, it's just a flesh wound. We're fine, you know. And people are driving by and they're like, you guys don't look okay. You know, we're like, we're okay. You know, we're like a bloody stump. It's crazy, right? You guys realize this weekend marks just one year that we've been able to meet in the morning. This is like the one-year anniversary of meeting in the morning. I know you guys are like, we've been doing this forever. We have not been doing this forever. We were a year ago in a parking lot. And it was warm in August at 4 o'clock in a parking lot. And many of you guys have been through tremendous suffering in your personal lives the last few years. You guys have been through, there have been deaths that have occurred in this room. There have been marriages that have gone through terrible times. There have been all kinds of wreck relationships. There have been like political drama. You know, some of you guys have a hard time even hanging out with your parents because it's too difficult because it's going to come down to some crazy political thing, drama. Some of you guys dealing with chronic pain, loneliness, social anxiety, financial anxiety, 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 you know, (laughs) the regular kind. And then, you know, you think about what's happened like to the wider church, the amount of scandal that's happened the last couple years. And some of you guys aren't kind of in tune to all this stuff, but tons of scandals occurred in the last couple years. High-profile Christians have fallen morally. Several have left the faith quite suddenly. And you're like, well, that's a surprise. And guys, massive numbers of people have stopped being a part of any church entirely. It's crazy out there. It's crazy in here. And yet, here you are, (laughs) still following Jesus. It's kind of amazing, isn't it? For all the things that have happened, both in your life and in this world. And like, this is an incredibly inhospitable time to be a Christian in our particular culture. It's very easy to just go, you know what, I just, I haven't found a church that really fits me, blah, 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 and make excuses like that and just kind of drift away. Super easy. Hardly anybody's going to give you a hard time. If they do, all you have to say is, oh, I watch on TV sometimes. You know? Like, oh, no, no, I watch so-and-so. It's like, oh, okay. Why have you persisted? The reason is in verse 7, you are partakers of grace. You've not been sifted because obviously Jesus is praying for you. That's why you have not been sifted. That's why you're still here. That's why you're still following Jesus, because he prays for you. And so verse 6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So we have something to be thankful for, something to be sure of, and then one more thing, something to pray for, for each other and for ourselves, and that's ever-increasing love. Look at verse 8. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affections of Christ Jesus. For it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul is praying here that their love would abound more and more. And I really love the way Paul does this, and he does this in Thessalonians too. When he wants to encourage believers to grow in something like love, he doesn't just say like, hey, you guys really need to step it up, you know, you call this love, you know, what's wrong with you people? He doesn't do that. He notices the love they already have, and he goes, let's do that more and more. Let's abound in it more and more. And I just think you, we could take a note from Paul here, couldn't we? When we encourage other believers, maybe you notice the fruit that's there first before you just kind of launch in, and then you say, hey, I saw this let's do that more and more. What do you think could grow that? How do you think we could, we could have more of that kind of fruit? 
And there's a couple of things I want you to see about love here from this prayer request that I think is super important because there's a lot of misunderstandings about love and this passage is so good on this. And the first one is, is that sanctification involves new loves, not just new knowledge. Look at verse 11. He's praying for them to be filled with the fruit of righteousness, right? He's praying for their sanctification. He's praying for their Christ-likeness. And for those of you guys who are maybe new to this, sanctification is the process by which we become more and more like Christ. It's not a process that saves us. We're saved in justification. We're made righteous all at once when we trust in Jesus. But then sanctification is a process whereby he takes a saint, you're a saint, when you trust in Jesus, you become a saint, you're in Christ, and makes you more saintly. Because you might go like, okay, I'll buy him a saint, but I'm no saint. And I'll be like, yeah, I saw. But what he's doing in sanctification is he's making us more and more like Christ. And that's what he's praying for here. But notice where he focuses the growth. He focuses it in their love. The verse 11, he said, filled with the fruit of righteousness. And then verse 9 says that he wants to see their love abound more and more. Sanctification involves new loves, not just new knowledge. This is really important. We're very knowledgey people, and I'm not repenting of that whatsoever. I think that's totally right. But we become more and more like Christ, not just by knowing the right things, and not even just by doing the right things, but by loving the right things. We get sanctified by our, our loves changing, that we would love more and more the things that God loves. And this is what we should pray for each other and for ourselves. Verse 9, it is my prayer that your love would abound more and more. If our loves are right, our deeds will follow. You know, we always give ourselves to what we love. And what he, he's focusing here is our loves, that we become more like Christ as we love the things he loves. And that's what heart changes. If you guys have been ever mystified by the idea of like, you got to go for the heart, you got to have your heart changed, need a new heart, you know. I've got these issues with my heart, like, what's that all about? You could just say, that's about affections, that's about loves, that's about the things that your core being desires. And what he's saying here is he's saying that heart change, what we need is new desires, new appetites, new wants, new affections. And so sanctification isn't just about new knowledge. And maybe that's where you're hung up, you know? Maybe you're like, I've been a Christian a long time, I've learned a lot of stuff, and I just don't feel like I've changed very much. Well, for one, you may have changed a lot. Maybe ask somebody else. But the other thing might be is perhaps you have a lot of knowledge, but your loves have not changed. And perhaps you're even trying to do the right things, but not from a heart that really loves the things God loves. Good example of that would be the Pharisees, right? So the Pharisees were able to do a lot of right deeds, but not with hearts of love. And so that's what God wants to change in us. He wants to change our love. Okay, so it's not just new knowledge, but what about knowledge? Knowledge is important too. Look at verse 9 again. True love requires knowledge and discernment. Look at verse 9. And it is my prayer for you that your love may abound more and more, listen to this, with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless at the day of Christ. Here we see, guys, that true love requires knowledge and discernment, okay? I want you guys to focus right now because it's super important. We can't just feel our way to love, okay? There's a cultural saying, love is love. So you're like, hey, I don't know if that kind of relationship's right, you know, things like that. And people are like, well, love is love. And you're like, oh, okay. If love is love, then, then I guess everything's fine, you know? Love is love. What's our culture saying there? Our culture is saying you can feel your way to love. If you feel like it's love, it's love, right? 
if it feels right, then it's love. Our culture teaches us that we can feel our way to love. And also, by doing that, that we would do the opposite of verse 10 and approve what is not excellent, right? Love is love. So the answer to what is love is you know it when you feel it. You know it when you feel it. But guys, we all know that's not the case. How many of you guys have thought in the past that you were loving someone and you weren't? That you were loving someone and you were really using them for your own purposes? Okay, no show of hands. Okay, let's do, no, no, let's not do show of hands. But you know what I mean? We've all been mistaken before. We've all thought like, oh, I totally love this person. And you didn't. You were using that person for your own purposes. Guys, love has to be informed with knowledge. Okay? What love is has to be informed with knowledge and discernment. And that's where the Word of God comes in. The Word of God actually shows us how to truly love God and our neighbor. We actually don't know how. And a lot of times if we guess how, we're wrong. The Word of God actually shows us how to love God and each other. So instead of love is love, you know, it's love is whatever God says it is, love is whatever the Word says, doesn't make as good of a bumper sticker, but you get what I'm saying. We need to actually be taught. Even Adam, even before the fall, had to be taught what his role was in the world. How much more now when we have sin deceiving us? So let's align our idea of love around God's Word because he knows what love actually is. And one of the most exciting things about, or one of the exciting things about Jesus is that he is and was God's word lived out. If we want to see what love's like, we want to see what the word is like, we can see it in the life of Jesus. As John said, it was his closest friend, he said, the word has become flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God is love, John says in another place. Jesus is God in the flesh, therefore Jesus is love in the flesh. And I think as we look at Jesus' life, we would say, like, that's love. Jesus is that perfect embodiment of what it means to love. When's the last time you guys have really done this? You know, I think it's important to get in the Gospels and actually see Jesus and what he's like with people. And you'll just be astounded by the way he loves. And his love isn't always just squishy, you know? It always isn't just like a, a warm back rub. Sometimes it's a rebuke. Sometimes it's a correction. But he always knows exactly how to love a person. He always knows exactly what to say. He always knows exactly the type of compassion someone needs. He knows always what kind of correction they might need. Jesus is that perfect example of love. And he wants to share his love with you today. He wants to give you himself. That's what love is. He wants to give you himself. First, as the one who died for your sin, that he might cover you with his love. Like we talked about union with Christ, that you're in Christ, that you're covered with his love. But he doesn't just want to cover you with his love, with union with Christ, and, and make you righteous before him. He also wants to fill you with his love. You know, being a Christian means being in Christ, covered with him, but also it means uh, having Christ in us. That by the Spirit, Jesus actually fills us. Jesus covers us with his love, and he fills us with his love. You in Christ and Christ in you. Can you imagine how great a news that was to that demon-possessed girl in Acts 16? And, and that she had so long been ruled by demons from within. And now she would be filled with Christ from within. That she would have him guiding her and filling her. Jesus offers that to you this morning. And Jesus offers to give you his actual love for other people. 
I think this is one of the coolest things, and we'll end on this. But take a look at what Paul says in verse 8. Because what Paul says in verse 8, if you take it seriously, is incredible. Okay? Take a look at it. Paul says this to the Philippians. He says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affections of Christ Jesus. Now you could just say, he's exaggerating. Although, when you start with God is my witness, and you're an apostle, and you write inspired scripture— thinking you're not exaggerating, right? It seems that he's speaking very literally here, okay? Think of what Paul is saying. He's saying, I yearn for you, the Philippian Christians, with the affection of Christ Jesus, with Christ Jesus's affections. What he's saying is, I love you guys with Jesus's love. I yearn for you with Jesus's love. Isn't that amazing? I just thought this was amazing. So apparently, through our union with Christ, Christ filling us, that Jesus' affections for other people can come out through your heart. Okay, so it's not about us somehow mustering up love for people, because that doesn't go well, right? You guys ever done that? You guys ever been like, today is the day I'm going to love people. <laughs> you know, I'm going to do this. And how'd it go? Worse than normal, right? <laughs> right? Worse than usual because that was us trying to muster up love from within us. What he's talking about here is there is a way for you to have Christ's love for other people coming out through your own heart as if it's yours. And I think that's incredible. So you're not just loving people with a love that's like Jesus's love. You're loving people with Jesus's actual love. And I think anytime you truly love another believer, you're actually experiencing just a little taste of how Jesus feels about them. Isn't that cool? You're experiencing a taste of how, a little taste of how Jesus feels towards them. Jesus' actual yearnings for them are coming through your own heart. And that's what explains the love in the church. You know, these aren't just a bunch of people with nice dispositions. that You got together and they got along. This has to be Jesus' love through our own hearts. It's Jesus' love through us. And did you guys know that was a thing? I just think that's incredible. This is something Paul prays for us to have. This is something we should pray for ourselves to have. And the prayer can sound like this. You think, okay, well, how do I pursue that? You know, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. So I think the prayer is something like this. Lord, I know what your word says about how I need to love this person. I feel so dead inside. I know that apart from you, I can do nothing. Please fill me with your love for them. I don't need a a copy love. I don't need an imitation type love. I need your very love flowing through me right now. Help me to yearn for them with the affections of Christ Jesus. You know, that could be our prayer. That's going to go a lot better than like, I'm going to try really hard to love these people today, right? Let's pray. Father, this is our desire. This is a desire of our hearts. Not to have a love like Jesus' love, but to love with Jesus' actual love, flowing out of our hearts for others. And we pray, Lord, that you would do that miracle in our hearts, even right now, even this moment, as each of your saints in Christ in this room are right now praying for their own hearts and for the hearts of the people in their family. We pray that you would cause us to yearn for one another with the affections of Christ Jesus. We're going to believingly pray that. 
right now. Lord, we pray that you would um, warm the hearts of husbands and wives toward each other, of parents and children, of kids to their parents, of estranged friends. Lord, we pray that we would have our resentments and our grudges melted away at this moment. Lord, we pray for that gift. We just pray that we would, even now, yearn for other people with the affections of Jesus Christ. We believe you for that. And we pray, Lord, during this week that we would abide in your son Jesus, that we would come to him with our anger and our frustration and our sadness and our disappointment. And we would hand it to you and we would ask you again and again and again as a, as a habit throughout the day to fill us with the affections of Jesus Christ for the people around us. Lord, the affections of your son Jesus, who, whose affections were not just feelings, they were actions. As he walked to that cross, carrying it on his back and going to the place of crucifixion, as he handed over both of his hands, his wrists, as he volunteered them to the soldiers, as he volunteered his feet, as he stayed on that cross for us, and as he yearned for us with affection, we pray, Lord, that you would give us that. Give us that love. Father, as we take the Lord's Supper now, as your people, those who are saints in Christ, receive the bread and the cup, we pray, Lord, that you would fill us with the Spirit. We pray, Lord, that this would be true food to us, true spiritual food, that this would be a feeding on the spiritual presence of Jesus. And so fill us with love. Live through us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.